The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. Um, we are continuing our little uh, game show style EDU show from last week where Jim was having some fun, I guess, uh, giving me the Ed Slot quiz that uh, Ed Slot does, uh, provides to his advisors in his advisor group a couple times a year. And Jim brings those questions from the quiz to the show here, and we kind of go over them in, a, in an effort to kind of educate and share with people some aspects to retirement planning that usually these things are uh, uh, rules-based topics, meaning what are the rules behind this, that, and the other type of transaction or thing that has happened in your retirement with regards to your retirement accounts, a lot of IRA-style questions, tax-related questions. So the uh, IRS rules play a large part in a lot of these quiz questions. But uh, we didn't get through the list, the whole quiz last time. We're not going to go through the whole thing. We're going to kind of cherry-pick what Jim thinks are the, the best questions and we did a few last week, and we're going to do some this week, and then uh, maybe be done with this and maybe have a few more next week. We'll just have to see how today goes. So uh, if you didn't listen to last week's show, today's continuation uh, on that. So, Jim, I think I'm practiced up or, or prepared as much as I can be since I don't get any of the materials ahead of time in order to answer these questions, but... I think you're doing good. I don't. I don't think you missed I, any. Did I you? I thought I missed one last time. Did I think you? There was something. Okay. I think there might have been one, but uh, so far they haven't been too bad. No, no, not, they're not too bad. Uh, this will be the last show. I think we'll do something different next week. We're not going to do all twenty questions. There are a lot of. I think I, I mentioned a lot of silly or stupid questions that I just don't think it would, it would warrant talking about on the podcast. But what I hope to do is, <clears throat> like we always do with this, is dive a little bit deeper into the nuances around the answers, kind of go down the rabbit hole, if you will, uh, which was, is very typical for Chris on the show to do. So I think it plays right into your strengths, Chris. Well, I hope so. <laughs> okay. 
So let's dive in uh, to an IRA question. How's that? Sure. Sounds good. All right. When is the only time the five-year payout rule? Now, this is under SECURE Act. So keep that in mind, folks. Under SECURE. When is the only time the five-year payout rule will apply to an inherited IRM? So I'm going to give four answers. One of them is correct. It's when the five-year rule will apply. And it's pretty much the only time the five-year rule is going to apply. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, um, as I read these answers, folks, what word, Chris, should people substitute when I say designated beneficiary? Human is the best, Human. best word to replace there. Exactly. The <clears throat> For some reason, the word designated beneficiary just screws everything up. Screws it up for me, too. So much to the point where I see, uh, for instance, the first acronym that he uses or initialism uh, would be a, the more appropriate word he uses is N-E-D-B. I actually have to stop there and say, wait a minute, that's a N-E-human. So it really helps if you use the word human instead of designated beneficiary. So when is the only time the five-year payout rule will apply to an inherited IRA? A, when a person dies before his required beginning date, and leaves the IRA to an NEDB. I'll put another way, folks, a non-eligible, that's the N and the E, a non-eligible human. Number two, when a person dies after his required beginning date and leaves the account to a non eligible human. Number three, when a person dies before his required beginning date and leaves the account to a non-human. No eligible in this one, folks. Just a non-human. The IRS calls it a non-designated beneficiary. I'm just going to call it a non-human. So we really have two types of humans here, folks. Uh, Excuse me, two types of beneficiaries. A non-eligible human and a non-human. And Chris, can a non-human inherit an IRA? Absolutely. Absolutely. The most common non-human, your estate, a charity, or a trust. All three of those are non-humans. Now, with a trust, let me put an asterisk next to that. Let's just say a non-see-through trust or a trust that does not qualify in the eyes of the IRS to be a beneficiary of an IRA. Those are generally called non-see-through trusts. But there's other ways to disqualify a trust as beneficiary of an IRA. The most common, though, is to violate the see-through trust rules. So it is quite possible to have a non 
human inherit an IRA? So back to the question, the answers. When a person dies before his required beginning date and leaves the account to a non-human, or when a person dies after his required beginning date and leaves the account to a non-human. In one of those four scenarios I laid out, one of them will require, mandate, the five-year rule. Do you want to take a gander, Chris, on which one? I think it's if I was keeping track of the order. I think it's the third one where he dies before his required beginning date and the beneficiary is a non-human, so a non or a yeah non-human, a non-human, non-designated non-human. beneficiary. Yes. Yep. So number three, I think, was that choice. Yep. And all these terms, folks, the IRS created these and Congress created these. So you got bureaucracy and idiots all created these. So these terms are being used in the tax code and in the actual law, Secure 1 and Secure 2. That's why I'm trying to simplify them by just calling them humans. Designated beneficiary is human. Chris, you are correct. So you can hit the little clap, 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 clap thing if you'd like. Chris is correct. Let's delve into this a little bit. Mm -hmm. First of all, when I gave the first sets of answers, Chris, I kept saying if they died before or after the required beginning date. Why don't you explain to our listeners what the required beginning date is? And I'll explain why this is important, but what is the required beginning date? Okay, so the required beginning date is the date, the formal hardcore last date (laughs) that you must take your first RMD, required minimum distribution. And it is defined as April 1st of the year following the year that you are required to start RMDs. So they actually give you essentially a grace period. For instance, if you reached your required, uh, the, the year that your required distributions happen is 2024, and this is the first year that you are uh, required to take a RMD, you actually have until April 1st of next year to take the first RMD. They give you that extra three months uh, January, February, and March of the following year to to take it. And I think it's just uh, because this is new to you, this is the first year that you have an RMD, maybe you need a little time, you, you forgot about it, you didn't realize it, the year comes to an end, and and then you uh, uh, decide to take it. There could be some intentional use of this rule, too, if for some reason you wanted to delay that first RMD until the following tax year. Um, that can, for some people, be beneficial. It's not always because in that that following year, if t- this year was the year you reached your RMD age, uh, if you wait until April 1st of next year to have taken the first RMD, you also have to take the RMD for 2025 as well. So, And that one can't be delayed into the following year. So the required beginning date is the, the April 1st of the year following the year that you reach your RMD age which uh, right now under current rules is age 73. Uh, For those born uh, after 1960, uh, well, technically 1960 and after, uh, your required um, minimum distribution start the year you turn 75. So they have under current law. Um, So we uh, we don't all have the same required beginning date, but it is April 1st of the year following that first year you have RMDs. 
Excellent. Thank you very much. You'll also notice I said there was one initialism used, N-E-D-B. Then there was a N-D-B, and there's actually an E-D-B. So let's talk a little bit about this. They're the three main types of beneficiaries that will inherit your IRA. Pretty much every beneficiary is going to fall into one of those categories. So the first two questions I read, the beneficiary was a N-E-D-B. And I said that stood for a non-eligible human, which is different than the last beneficiary I mentioned, a N-D-B, which is a non-human. Everybody knows what a non-human is. It's something that's not a human. It's a trust. It's an estate. It's a charity. It could be your dog. It could be an oak tree in your backyard. There is nothing wrong with naming a dog and an oak tree as beneficiary. It's going to be a stupid thing to do. And I don't quite know if your custodian would accept my oak tree in the backyard as a beneficiary. But there's nothing in the tax code that says you cannot name a non-human to inherit your IRA. But Chris, when we say a NEDB, a non-eligible human, or an EDB, an eligible human, we're trying to differentiate one very important and distinct difference. One human is eligible to do something, and one human is not eligible to do something. What is it they may or may not be eligible to do? So the eligibility issue is they're eligible or not to stretch the distributions over their uh, life expectancy or a modified version of it, depending on there's a couple different classes or a couple different specific eligible designated beneficiaries or eligible humans, but we're talking about their ability to stretch. And a lot of people are under the false impression that the stretch IRA, an inherited IRA that then can have distribution stretched over the beneficiary's life, uh, are dead, but it is not true. There's the class of eligible humans, eligible designated beneficiaries, who can still stretch. The non-eligible are not eligible for the stretch and fall under some version of the 10-year rule. Exactly. So a lot of people think, like Chris said, that the stretch IRA, which never was the original law when IRAs were created in 78, I believe it was George Bush Jr. who created them in early 2000. I think it was 2000 to 2001. So stretch IRAs were something relatively new. They grew in popularity and everybody loved them. Congress didn't love them too much because it keeps the government from getting their taxes. It keeps your uncle from getting their taxes and they don't like to wait. So they started to kill off the stretch IRA with the passage of the First Secure Act in 2000, excuse me, in 2020. But Chris and I had been predicting for years before 2020 that we felt the stretch IRA would go the way of the dodo bird because, number one, it wasn't part of the original rules. And it was a revenue raiser, if you will. Get rid of the stretch. Government gets money quicker. Keep the stretch. 
allow a beneficiary to keep the IRA open for the rest of his or her life expectancy, especially if someone inherits it in their 40s or 50s, when their life expectancy can be another 30 or 40 years or more. If someone in their teens or 20s inherited it, you keep it open for 60 or 70 years. Government don't want to wait that long for their taxes. They're very impatient. So we always predicted the death of the stretch. So Chris is correct as well as saying there are certain classes of beneficiaries that are eligible to stretch. They are the EDBs, the eligible humans. Everybody who is not an EDB and is a human by default is a NEDB or non-eligible human. So what are the classes? We're not going to get deep into them. I'm just going to name them. Everybody should know the first, the surviving spouse. Everybody knows they didn't go after the surviving spouse. So your spouse can inherit your IRA. And if he or she is significantly younger than you, they could keep the IRA open a lot longer than if you uh, were living because they could stretch over their remaining life expectancy if they so chose. Many will choose to move it to their own IRA, which they're also allowed to do. Minor children of the account owner, but only until they're age 21. That's an important distinction. First, the child, it's not any child. You can't randomly find a child and leave them your IRA has to be your children. Now, it can be by blood or by adoption, but they have to be your children. But they're only allowed to stretch until they turn 21. Then they are subject to the 10-year rule. They have to close the IRA within 10 years, as every NEDB, non-eligible human, must do. So they're only eligible to stretch. They're only an EDB, an eligible human, until 21. Then, kind of like a caterpillar coming out of a cocoon, they, they what do you call that, metamorphosis? Is that the correct term? They just kind of turn into something else. They're kind of like a tadpole turns into a frog. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a metamorphosis? I think so. All right. So like a metamorphosis, they turn from a EDB, an eligible human, to all of a sudden, a NEDB, a non-eligible human, who must close it within 10 years. So in short, the longest your child who inherits your IRA, if they're a minor, will be able to keep that IRA open is age 31. You could leave it to them, say, at age 10. And from 10 to 21, that first 11 years, they stretch over their remaining life expectancy, which for a 10-year-old would be very, very minimal. But as soon as they hit 21, they must now close it within 10 years, no later than age 31. Also unique, and this surprises people, people still get this wrong. Chris, our grandchildren included in this. Grandchildren of the beneficiary? Mm-hmm. Or I'm sorry, of the IRA? Excuse me, not the beneficiary, of the IRA owner who died. 
and their grandchildren also be treated the same way. Stretch until 21, then from 21 to 31, close it within that 10-year period. I don't think so, but now you have me second-guessing guessing no, myself. No, don't, don't stop there. You, you hit it. No. That causes a lot of confusion. There's no rhyme or reason to it, short of the government doesn't want to wait. So if you leave your IRA to a grandchild, even though they're a minor, just like your child would have been not when they were having your grandchildren, chances by now they're adults, but your minor children can stretch till 21, then the 10-year rule from 21 to 31. But if you leave it to a minor grandchild, they have just the 10-year rule. They are a NEDB from day one, non-eligible human. Okay, the fourth class of beneficiaries who can stretch, the fourth class who are eligible humans, chronically ill individuals. Now, there's, we won't get into it, but there's strict rules on what chronically ill is. It's generally people who probably aren't going to live more than a few years. The ability for them to stretch rather than taking out over 10 years is probably more of a nuance than anything. But yes, chronically ill individuals. Uh, the other one, disabled individuals. Now, that is not just any, quote unquote, disability. It's under the very, very strict IRS rules on what constitutes disability. But a disabled individual can stretch over his or her lifetime. And then finally, and this one kind of can confuse people, but once again, anybody who is not more than 10 years younger than the decedent, than the IRA owner who died. So pretty much anybody who is older or anyone who is not more than 10 years younger, they're trying to get people who are in that generation or older. Do you think I explained that one Mm -hmm. right or did I confuse people? No, you got it. So what I think Congress was trying to do with that rule was to say, hey, if somebody is older and they want to stretch over their life expectancy, we, Congress, will get the money quicker because they're going to have to use their single life expectancy. And if they're older, it would be less than what the living person had. So, hey, we're fine with that. But what they didn't want to do is, again, allow people to leave their IRAs to younger generations and make Congress wait longer to get their taxes. But I think, and this is only me because you can't crawl into the head of a politician because I'm not a politician. I actually have brains. So you can tell I don't like politicians. But anyways, I don't know why, except the only reason that I can think of is by putting this not more than 10 years younger I think they're kind of saying, hey, that's the same generation, so we're going to be nice. If you leave it to like a brother or a sister, and I think that's what they were thinking, most brothers and sisters, not all, but most are within 10 years of each other. 
And I think they're kind of saying, hey, if you're going to leave it to your brother and sister, it's the same generation for all intent and purposes. We're going to be able to close this IRA under the same timeline as if you were alive. We'll be nice. So anyways, I think they were just trying to keep you within that generation. So all those people, folks, they are still eligible humans. So let's get to the main question. So again, the question was, which one is going to have to use the five-year rule? I already explained to you, some humans are going to be eligible to stretch over their life expectancy. And I already explained to you, some humans are not going to be allowed to stretch over their life expectancy. And the new 10-year rule is going to apply. What the hell is this five-year rule? What is this five-year rule that Congress is talking about? Well, Congress is actually talking about in a five-year rule is the rule that's been around for a very, very, very long time. The five-year rule has always been around. And in fact, it's the rule that Chris and I thought Congress was going to just enact for everybody when we kept saying they were going to get rid of the stretch IRA. We just said they're going to go to the five-year rule. The five-year rule has always been there. But they didn't. They created this brand new 10-year rule. And they kept the five-year rule, but they greatly, greatly, greatly reduced who it's going to apply to. And there's really only one, as this question says, beneficiary that will have to be subject to the five-year rule. And Chris nailed it. When a person dies before they are required to take money out of their IRA, before their required beginning date. So today, that was pretty much anybody dying before 73, because the age for RMDs right now is 73. Another nine years, it'll be 75. But right now, it's 73. So if somebody dies before 73, or their required beginning date, and leaves the money to a non-human, that non-human must close the IRA within five years. Most people are not naming their dog or an oak tree in the backyard. And when you name a charity, no harm, no foul there, the charity is just going to want to close that account and take their money because they get it 100% tax-free, even if it's a traditional IRA. They get it 100% tax-free. But if you name a trust and the trust does not qualify to be beneficiary of an IRA, or worse, you name an estate as beneficiary of your IRA, which people still to this day do, then those non-humans are subject to the five-year rule that simply says the IRA must be closed within five years of the date of your death by December 31st of the fifth year following your death. So if you died in 2024, it must be closed by December 31st, 2029. That's the five-year rule. Simple, brutal. You got to close it really quick. And if your estate is inheriting it or a trust that doesn't qualify is inheriting it, it's going to have to be closed quite quickly and all that account is going to be subject to a taxes. Uh, if it's at the estate, it could be subject to the taxes at the estate level, but most likely the estate would pass it on to the beneficiaries of the estate. 
But had the beneficiaries been named individually as humans, it is likely that they would have been able to keep it over at minimum 10 years, possibly longer if they were one of the beneficiaries who are eligible to keep stretching the five classes that I just mentioned earlier. So, Chris, you are 100% correct. It is anybody, any human who dies owning an IRA and leaves it to a non-human, and they died before their required beginning date. But, and this is (laughs) an important um, but, this would be a big but, if you will. We used to play uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot. But there is a big but on this. If a human dies after their required beginning date, because that was the next quote-unquote answer, folks, but Chris picked up on it. I said when a person dies after their required beginning date and leaves the account to a non-human, Chris picked up on that. He didn't choose that one as an answer. And that's because if the IRA owner dies after, essentially right now, after age 73 and leaves their IRA to a non-human, a charity, an estate, a trust that doesn't qualify, an oak tree or a dog, that non-human beneficiary, if they want, can keep the IRA open under the remaining life expectancy of the decedent. And that's called the ghost life expectancy. Anything you want to add on that, Chris? No, I don't. The IRS doesn't call it the ghost life expectancy, but uh, essentially it's the life expectancy of the decedent, the person who passed away. So if you're looking for ghost in the IRS code, it's not going <laughs> to be in thing. there. That's just the, the way we planners talk about it. Right. That's the industry name that was given to it, the ghost life expectancy, because the person's dead. And if the person's dead, then you have a ghost situation. And it's not a scary ghost. It's a friendly ghost, like Casper. But what you need to do is you could theoretically, and Chris, you once figured out, we talked about this on a podcast last year, the life expectancy of a 73-year-old is significantly more than 10 years, I believe. And it's there's because of this, it's kind of a loophole is where I'm getting with this, folks, that a non-human may be able to keep an IRA open longer mm-hmm. than an non excuse me than a non eligible human they have to take it out over 10 years but a non human if the owner died after age 7 on seven, after the required beginning date mm-hmm. which would be April 1st following the year they turned 73 if they die after that the non-human beneficiary could keep it open. Isn't it 16? Wasn't that it? Do you have it's about a that. Yeah, I'd table? have to pull it back up. But it's so depending on the ages, you might have the ghost life expectancy be longer than the 10-year period. I think it was all the way up to somewhere in the early 80s yeah. when the life expectancy of the ghost, if you will, starts to get lower than 10 years. 
So there is this little loophole where a non-human can actually keep an IRA open longer than a human. That's age 82. Age 82, life expectancy is 9.9. So about the same. If you're younger than that, then the ghost life expectancy is going to be longer than the 10-year period. If you're older than that, then the 10 years better. And there was a discussion at one of our Ed Slot meetings. I don't think it was the last one. Uh, the last one was online. So it was the one before that or a couple of before that. So over the past year or two, uh, when this was all being bantered about, that you could theoretically purposefully create a trust that will not qualify to be an non, excuse me, a EDB, mm-hmm. an eligible human. Eligible for what? To stretch, excuse me, a non-eligible human. They're not eligible to stretch, so the 10-year rule would apply. If you created a trust that purposefully fails as being a beneficiary of an IRA, so it's categorized as a non-human beneficiary, and the decedent dies between 73 and 82, you could keep that IRA open a little bit longer. Excuse me. Yes, you could keep the IRA open a little longer because the payments come from the IRA into a trust that doesn't qualify to be beneficiary, and that trust can then just pass the money right on to the human, and it would be taxed to the human. It's called a conduit trust, so it wouldn't build up any money. It wouldn't be hit by the very, very, very unfavorable compressed trust tax rates, all those things we talk about. It's just going to be a conduit trust that passes the money right to the human. And if you kept that as the beneficiary between the IRA owners age 73 and then change it at age 82, you could get the human beneficiary of the trust. The trust itself may not qualify to be beneficiary. That simply means the ghost life expectancy applies. But the money can still go into the trust. The trust itself is good. There's nothing wrong with the trust. It just can't be beneficiary of the IRA because it didn't dot its T and cross its I. But if you created something like that, the human could end up with a longer stretch. And there was this whole discussion in the group, Chris, about doing that. And Ed fully admitted it could be done, but he felt it's a hell of a lot of work for what? Keeping an IRA open? A couple more years. More years, but you can is set it, it up. Really going to be worth it? Yeah, you'd name the trust as contingent beneficiary, and then it would allow there to be a disclaiming strategy where, depending on the ages of everyone when the person passed away, either the the human could receive it because they're the primary, or they could disclaim and let it go to the trust and then get a longer stretch and longer than the ten years. So, and then the trust itself <laughs> could disclaim once yeah. the person reaches seventy three. Chris is correct. You would name the trust as the the purposefully wrong trust. You're not trying to create a trust for protection and control. You're trying to create a trust to give someone a little bit more than 10 years to quote unquote stretch. So it's not hard to screw up a trust to not be beneficiary of an IRA, but perfectly good for any other reason. 
So you would name that as the primary beneficiary. You name the actual human you would like to give it to as contingent. And that same human is the beneficiary of the trust. So what would happen, and you do this when you're 73, and what would happen is then the 70, excuse me, the person dies right at 73 to make this easy. Now the human is faced with, uh, I think you, gosh, Chris, that's about eight more years of quote unquote stretch. So what would happen is the trustee of the trust would not disclaim. He or she would be, no, give it to the trust, give it to ours. And the IRS would say, well, that does not qualify to be beneficiary. It's not going to be an EDB. It's not going to be an eligible designated beneficiary. It's an NDB. It's a non-human. You must close it over the ghost life expectancy. Now the payments can last for 18 years, not 10. The trustee, being a conduit trust, simply takes the money out and gives it straight to the beneficiary you were trying to get it to to begin with. But now that beneficiary has eight more years to stretch. However, Chris is correct. You might not have your timing down. Or for one reason or another, they want it to go directly to the human. Also, the trustee has to do within nine months of your death is disclaim the inheritance to say, hey, we don't want. I am the trustee of this trust. I don't want the inheritance. Now, it's a little bit more than that. You have to follow certain rules, file some paperwork. But now, by law, it will go to the designated, excuse me, the contingent beneficiary on the IRA designation form, which is the actual human. And at that point, the human would get it for 10 years. Now, this is very important if you never update your, if you ever wanted to try this, and an attorney who's willing to do this for you, you don't change the beneficiary designation and you die at 85. Now, the stretch is much less because your single life expectancy, your ghost life expectancy is less than the 10 years. You've defeated the purpose of everything you were going to do. So that's when the trustee would simply disclaim. Say, hey, I'm the trustee of the trust. We disclaim. It's going to pass to the contingent beneficiary. And it's as if that primary beneficiary never existed in the eyes of the IRS. And it would just go to the contingent beneficiary and they would be able to keep it open for 10 years. So you are right, Chris. That's how it would work with disclaiming strategies. But I agree with Ed. Hell of a lot of work for a few more years of stretch. Yeah. Not to mention the cost of creating a purposefully defective trust as beneficiary of an IRA, which, again, is not hard to do. But it's going to cost you a couple of thousand bucks to create a trust like that. That, So, and you got a trustee involved, and you got all that stuff. Yeah, may not be worth it for a hundred thousand dollar IRA. Might be worth it for a twenty thousand. Excuse me, a two million dollar IRA. But again, that's up to you guys to decide. Okay, enough of that. We beat that horse to death. Okay. Under the question, another question, Chris. Mm-hmm. Under ALAR, well, what's ALAR? Do you remember? At least as rapidly. At least as rapidly. And it is a very big provision. In the eyes of the IRS, it is a very big provision 
in how they look at IRA distributions under the SECURE Act. But under the at least as rapidly or ALAR, A-L-A-R, ALAR rule, it dictates that when an IRA owner dies on or after his required beginning date, required minimum distributions apply to a beneficiary who is subject to the 10-year rule. These RMDs will be based, though, on what life expectancy? So here's four different life expectancies, Chris. I'll get into a little bit of what this question is is asking, folks, for those who don't follow. Chris does follow. So here are the four beneficiaries. Under ALAR, and you die after your required beginning date. Under SECURE 2, the IRS took the position. That beneficiary has to start taking RMDs for the first nine years and fully close the IRA by the 10th year. What life expectancy did they use? The beneficiary's single life expectancy? The IRA owner or the deceased IRA owner's single life expectancy? The beneficiary's life expectancy under the uniform lifetime table? Or the deceased IRA owner's life expectancy under the uniform lifetime table. So essentially, are you going to use the single life expectancy table of the beneficiary or the IRA owner who died? Or are you going to use the other table that's out there, the uniform lifetime table of the beneficiary or the IRA owner? Which one is it, Chris? What life expectancy do you use? Yeah. Strangely enough, it's going to be option number one, the single life table for the beneficiary, which in my mind doesn't make those RMDs at least as rapidly because oftentimes the decedent is much older than the beneficiary and was having RMDs that were larger then uh, the beneficiaries would calculate under their own life if they're much younger. So, But that's the rule. So it's option number one. Exactly. Chris is 100% correct, and it always made me scratch my head. Mm-hmm. You see, the 10-year rule is in secure, but not the importance of taking RMDs during the 10 years. Everybody thought it was going to follow the five-year rule, and the five-year rule is very explicit. No distributions need to be taken at all in year one to four. Only in year five, you have to make sure everything is closed by then. So the first four years, it's up to you if you want to take anything out or not. By the fifth year, you got to take it all out by December 31st. Everybody thought the IRS would simply say the 10-year rule is going to follow that five-year rule. rule. But no, they pulled out and started waving a flag around of ALAR. And they said, hey, and the tax code is ALAR, or at least as rapidly. And we say it applies here. Now, even the IRS is so unsure if that was Congress's intent That's the IRS's intent, 
But they don't know if it's Congress's intent. And Congress never codified it in the rule. So they have actually come out and said, hey, if you are a NEDB, a non-eligible human, and you are subject to the 10-year rule, and the IRA owner died after their required beginning date, we feel you need to take RMDs beginning in year one. But they essentially have waived it for the last three years. They said if you inherited an IRA since Secure One, January of 2020, there is no penalty for not taking an RMD in 21, 22, and 23. They have essentially waived it. And by default, the way it was released, you don't have to take it. However, they are still saying you are subject to it. But for the last three years, they told you essentially you don't have to take it. And I think they're just trying to figure this all out in their heads. Are they going to base all of this under ALAR, at least as rapidly, and make people start taking distributions if they inherit an IRA after the decedent should have started RMDs and they're not eligible to stretch? Are we going to force them to take yearly RMDs or not? Their heart says yes, their mind is saying no, and they keep delaying it. I have no idea if they're going to delay it for 2024 as well. So it doesn't hurt to wait. Last year, I think they came out in May, maybe even June. It was quite early last year, relatively speaking, quite early when they came out and waived it for 23. But the first time they waived it, didn't come out. I was in Ohio then. So it had to have been October or November. So if you don't need to take the RMD right away, you don't need the money, and you essentially fall into this situation, you're a human, you inherited an IRA, the person who died died after their required beginning date, so you are subject to the 10-year rule because you are a non-eligible human, you can't stretch if you don't need it right away in 2024, you might want to wait to see if they waive it again for 2024. It's just one of the most bizarre rules that they're doing. And what also made me scratch my head, and it's why Chris has mentioned it, because together he and I have been talking, this is silly. If you're going to say I'm basing this under ALAR, which is in the tax code, ALAR is in the tax code under different areas, but at least as rapidly. You would think, Chris, they're going to force you to take it under the remaining life expectancy of the decedent, because that's at least as rapidly. But letting you use your own life expectancy, and if the person was older, Chris is correct, most of the time you inherit IRAs from people older than you, you're not taking it out at least as rapidly. So it's really bizarre. And then adding to the confusion... If somebody dies before their required beginning date, so let's say they were 72, they hadn't quite reached 73 yet, or April 1st of the year following, the year they turned 73. Let's say they are already 73. Let's take this one step further. Let's say they were born July 24th, chocolate cake day. They were born July 24th, and they were going to turn 73 in 
this year, 2024, on July 24th. And they died on September 24th, just two months later. They're already 73. However, they didn't die after, on or after April 1st of the following year. So that beneficiary is not subject to ALAR and having to take RMDs for the first nine years of the 10-year period. They qualify to say, hey, under ALAR, this person hasn't started their RMDs yet. So the IRS said the IRS can't have their cake and eat it too. They can't have their chocolate cake and eat it too. They can't say we're going to force under ALAR distributions the first nine years of the 10-year rule. They're saying, hey, we're basing this on ALAR at least as rapidly. So if they're going to say that we're using ALAR to force you to take money out, they can't turn around and say even if they're not subject to RMDs because that to me is a violation of ALAR. At least as rapidly means if they weren't supposed to take anything, at least as rapidly is continuing to take nothing. That's at least as rapidly. So at least they're being fair on that. So if somebody dies before their required beginning date, even at 73 in my example, some people are going to be able to sit there and do nothing for the first nine years and then close it all in year 10 if they so desire. So it just adds more confusion to this. And then finally, if you want to get even more confusing, Chris, what happens in a situation like this? Let's say somebody, Chris, inherits an IRA and they are a eligible designated beneficiary, an eligible human. So they're stretching. Okay. Oh, are you there? Yep. I'm listening. Oh, I don't know. I don't know you're there. Okay. Let me um, think in my head to make sure I get this straight. Okay. So you have somebody who is an eligible designated beneficiary. Let's say there's someone who is older or not more than 10 years younger than the decedent. So they can stretch. So they have an inherited IRA and they're stretching. Now they die. They die. Not the IRA owner. The IRA owner actually already died. A couple years later, the person who inherited it dies. That's where the successor beneficiary rules step in, okay? A successor beneficiary steps in and is immediately subject to the 10-year rule. Right. Now, you would think, follow the logic of the IRS here, folks. You would think under the situation... They've already started their RMDs. So irrespective of the age of the person who was stretching, let's say they were only 40, the person who inherits it is now subject to the 10-year rule, even though the person is technically younger than their required beginning date, which is age 73, April 1st, the year following the year, they're 73, they were already subject to RMDs. So under ALAR, RMDs must continue. Nobody's disputing that. And they're saying, okay, great. 
What life expectancy do we do now, Chris? Does that successor beneficiary go and continue the distributions under the remaining life expectancy of the decedent? Or do they use, like we just explained, the single life table for their remaining life expectancy? Mm. What table do you use in that situation, Chris? That's a good question. I think you use the original beneficiary. The person who's stretching. Not, not the successor. And you are correct. Why? They're just making this more confusing. Yeah, they're just making it up as they go along. <laughs> So follow this, folks. If you inherit and you're subject to the 10-year rule from someone who's already stretching, you use their life expectancy. Yeah, that's weird. But if you inherit directly and you're subject to the 10-year rule, in both cases, you're subject to the 10-year rule. But in one case, you have to use the remaining life expectancy of the decedent and in the other case, you use your remaining life expectancy. Why? Why are they doing that? I don't know. They should have just said everybody uses the remaining life expectancy of the decedent. Because that's what makes sense under the concept of at least as rapidly. But no. I swear they do this on purpose, Chris. I swear they do this just to confuse the hell out of people. Yeah. It is okay. weird. It doesn't seem consistent at all. <laughs> it doesn't. It can guarantee you it doesn't. All right. I wanted to get into collectibles, then we'll wrap this up. Okay. Okay. There's two questions on collectibles. So we're going to kill two birds with one stone if yours truly can find the questions. This is easier. Okay, there it is. All right. So this first one has to do with something called non-fungible tokens. Let me first explain. I want nothing to do with non-fungible tokens, and neither does Ed uh, when he went over this with us. But it has to do with IRS Notice 23- excuse me, 2023-27. Uh, what year do you think, Chris, IRS Notice 2023-27 came out? Well, it's not 2027 yet, so it's got to be 2023. And what number notice do you think that was in 2023? Mm. Uh, 27th. There you go. See, these quiz the questions are getting easier. <laughs> <laughs> I got to give the IRS credit here. Beautiful way to name their notices. 2023-27. Perfect. I mean, there, that, that, that is, I wish, all of the rules that the IRS created were as easy to understand as that. It was the 27th notice of 2023, and the IRS specifically addressed non-fungible tokens. If you want to know what they are, go ahead and read about them. It's just some thing that fortunately is not nearly as popular as it was during the whole um cyber bubble type thing there with with um, cyber currencies and all that kind of stuff. But non-fungible tokens are 
kind of a way, it's a digital identifier, if you will, that's tied generally to something tangible. Even though it's intangible, it's a digital, quote unquote, token on something called the blockchain. And it just kind of gives you ownership, a digital ownership of a physical asset. And I think there was a time where people were selling non-fungible tokens for the stupidest things. However, many non-fungible tokens are tied to collectibles. And that, in the eyes of the IRS, was a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Huge. So that's why they came out with this notice and probably burned a lot of people. Let me explain. So let's get to the questions. When a non-fungible token, oh, excuse me, when is a non-fungible token itself considered a collectible? Because remember, a non-fungible token is just a digital ownership of a certain percentage of a physical asset. So you might have an artist wanting to sell some of his or her work, um, a musician wanting to sell some of his or her music or whatever. There were people selling ownership stakes in stupid things. And they could say, you know, this quote unquote token that you can buy represents one tenth of this or one one hundredth of a percent of this. And you can be a partial owner of this thing, if you will. So the question is, when is a non-fungible token itself considered to be a collectible? A, if it gives the non-fungible token holder a right to a prohibited collectible, two, or B, if it certifies ownership of the prohibited collectible, both A and B, neither A and B. When is a non-fungible token itself considered a collectible? Hmm. I'm going to have to guess on this one because I'm also not a big fan of the whole NFT mania. Uh, so don't pay much attention to it and haven't run across people personally that I've uh, that have held NFTs. So I haven't looked into this much. So I'm going to say... Um, Before you answer, the word both A and B is confusing. I wish it would have said either A and B or neither A and B. Because oh. by saying both, it makes it seem like both, both of have those to be must true. happen. Right. Correct. Right. So both should actually be either. Oh, see, that's the one I'm going to pick then, because that's the way I was leaning, but I was, the both, I was interpreting the way you just, you know, clarified that both means to me that both A and B have to be true for it to be considered a collectible, when I think the IRS would take the position that either, if either A or B is true, then it's considered a collectible. And the reason why we're making a big deal about this is collectibles are one of the small list of items you cannot hold in an IRA. So um, I'm going to go with uh, C. This is correct. And that's why I wanted to clarify that. I, I actually got that one right, but I 
thought to myself, he means either, not both. Mm -hmm. Because to me, both means both have to apply. The key is the IRS has strict rules. It says an IRA cannot own life insurance, S-Corp stock, or collectibles. And if it owns those, it will be considered a prohibited investment. Now, that is not as bad as a prohibited transaction. What happens, Chris, let's just say you have a million-dollar IRA and you buy uh, $200,000 in an asset five years ago that during an audit, the IRS deems was either S-Corp stock, life insurance, or a collectible. IRS is going to tell you, hey, five years ago, you committed a prohibited investment. You bought with IRA money this collectible. What's the IRS going to do to you besides scream and yell and penalize you? What's essentially going to happen? Well, they're going to point it out to you and then say, essentially, we're going to consider that investment that you made separate from your rest of your IRA, and that will be distributed. That will be considered distributed so that you can have that investment, but it's no longer in your IRA. Correct. And it goes back five years. So they're going to say the distribution happened January 1st of the year you purchased the prohibited investment five years ago. So they're going to assess Pay penalties. There was the underpay, underreporting of income five years ago, the, the money that you should have paid, the penalties of not paying it on time every year. So it's it's a bad thing, but it's not as bad as a prohibited transaction. A prohibited transaction and the most common prohibited transaction is self-dealing inside an IRA buying something that you somehow own. You might structure these LLCs to own something that owns something. And then you go try to buy something or sell your own IRA, something that you own. People try this gimmick all the time. That's a prohibited transaction. Mm -hmm. That in the same example, you had a million dollar IRA and five years ago, you did a prohibited transaction with $200,000. The IRS catches it during an audit. They're not as lenient as they were with a prohibited investment. Prohibited investment is just saying, hey, you should have took this $200,000 out and paid taxes on it five years ago. We're going to redo your taxes from five years ago. We're going to assess the taxes back then. We're going to hit you with underpayment penalties and et cetera, et cetera. And and here's what you owe us. But a prohibited trans, excuse me, a prohibited, yeah, that's right, prohibited transaction self-dealing five years ago with $200,000 from a million-dollar IRA will subject the entire million-dollar IRA to have been considered distributed five years ago. Much more significant penalty on a prohibited transaction. And if memory serves me correct, I don't know if Secure 2 addressed prohibited transactions and made it a little less, I think, God, don't quote me on this. I'll have to go back and look. I don't think it's taken effect yet. 
I think there might be something in Secure 2, though, with prohibited transactions to make it a little less onerous. Um, but don't quote me on that. But prohibited transactions are even worse. So here's what the IRS was cracking down on. You can't own collectibles. You can't own works of art, rugs, antiques, metals, gems, collectible stamps, coins. Now, there is some bullion and some coins issued by governments that are allowed. So people do buy gold in their IRA. But you just can't go buy any coin and any stamp and any ruby or antique or rug or artwork. But many of these non-fungible tokens, folks, were tied exactly to that, collectibles. And people were running out and buying them in their IRA. And the IRS was like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This whole non-fungible token stuff was supposed to allow people to own a little bit of a lot of these real-world collectible items. Rather than trying to sell it to one person, you could turn around and sell it to hundreds, if not thousands of people. You know, death by a thousand cuts, if you will. You can get a thousand people willing to pay you something. Maybe together they're willing to pay you more than what one person would have paid you for it. Mm But the IRS is turning around and saying, wait a minute here, folks. You're essentially buying a collectible. So they they said under this notice that if either of these things happen, if the non-fungible token give you a right to a prohibited uh, collectible, or if it certifies your ownership, in a prohibited collectible, either of those, it is going to be considered a collectible and you just did a prohibited transact, excuse me, a prohibited investment and you owe us taxes. So I wanted to talk about that, not so much for NFTs, but for those of you, a lot of you guys are do-it-yourselfers. And if you're getting all caught up into this crypto NFT type thing, be very careful if you purchased NFTs inside your IRA. And those are tied specifically to these items that I've shared with you. Life insurance, S-Corp stock, art, antiques, rugs, metals, gems, stamps, coins, alcohol, beverages, and other tangible property specified by the IRS at a later date. So these are things to keep in mind. Did you find, did you Google real quickly if prohibited transactions have been changed under secure Oh, I didn't. Uh, okay, don't worry about it. I could have sworn there's so much buried in secure folks. I thought in the back of my mind there was a provision on prohibited transactions, but I could be totally, totally wrong. Okay, so the very last collectible question, since we talked about collectibles, and it just happens to be the very last question on the test, and what better way to wrap up today's show than get into the last question? We'll skip everything else in between. Here's the last question, Chris. IRAs cannot be invested in collectibles. Which of the following are considered collectibles? Artwork, rugs or antiques, alcoholic beverages, or all of the above? If you were paying attention, I just said the answer. I wasn't because uh, I was reading the 
prohibitive transactions don't appear to have been changed because I'm right on the IRS website and still describing the consequences of a prohibited transaction. Generally, okay. if an IRA owner has or his or her beneficiaries engage in a prohibited, prohibited transaction in connection with an IRA account at any time during the year, the account stops being an IRA as of the first day of the year. So that's currently posted on IRS website, so I don't think it's changed. Okay. So back to your question. <laughs> read, it, read it again for me. You don't remember the question. The one you just read? <laughs> okay. IRAs cannot be invested in collectibles. Right. Which of the following are considered collectibles under the tax code? Artwork, rugs or antiques, alcoholic beverages, or all of the above? All of the above. You are correct. It's too bad about the alcohol. I can't think of anything better to go in an IRA but alcohol. (laughs) Okay. um, I just Googled real quickly, and I believe I am on a attorney's website. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to read that. Folks, I'm going to read this live. Under Secure 2, it establishes a new exemption from the prohibited transaction rules under the IRC code and under the ERISA Act of 1974 that would permit an IRA provider to receive compensation in connection with the transfer amounts from a default IRA, whatever that means, pursuant to automatic rollover. The exemption requires a list. Okay, this has nothing to do with what I thought it was. This gets into the operational aspects of an IRA. This is really more for the custodian than for people. Um, over there. Yeah, it has nothing to do with what I thought. I knew there was something. I think there's a prohibited- new exemption, some new exemptions, but if you don't meet one of those exemptions, the consequences are still the same, blowing up your whole IRA. Yes, it blows up your entire IRA. Nice. Yeah. So anyways, I knew there was something insecure about prohibited transactions. It doesn't lessen the penalty, folks. Again, this is written in legalese. That's why I stopped reading it. And it has more to do with 401ks than anything. Um, so nothing, nothing that's going to change what Chris and I just said. Okay, well, that kind of wraps it up. I just kind of like doing this every time we do the Ed Slot test, folks. It just is, it's, it's cute, it's fun, it's different, but it gives us a chance to dive deeper into the nuances. That's the whole point. It wasn't to go over five questions. It was to teach you about the beneficiary designations, the eligible beneficiaries, the non-eligible, the classes of beneficiaries, the distribution rules, collectibles, things like that. I just like diving into the weeds a little bit and teaching you all a little something. That's why we call this the EDU show. Yeah, perfect. Well, I'll look forward to another one of these in about six or seven months. And uh, hope everyone else has taken a little tidbit here or there from, from what we talked about today. We'll have a new EDU show for you next week. We do appreciate you listening if you uh, want the... Uh, not Ed Slot questions answered, but rather questions from listeners. That's our Q&A show that's coming up in a few days, so stay on the lookout for that. Do we have a topic for next week's EDU, or is it 
Little, Chris, I don't even know what the premature. weather's going to do tomorrow. How would I know okay. what I'm going to talk about <laughs> next know. Tuesday? Just thought I'd ask. Sometimes you got this wonderful. No idea. idea. I'm so. still in Florida, folks. I, I fly home this coming Sunday, so um, Tuesday. I have no idea. <laughs> I let me get home to to Colorado first, settled in, and you know me. I'll most likely think of a topic literally just before we start recording. So I have no idea what we'll be chatting about. Yeah. Okay. Well, sounds good. You have a nice time. Hopefully the weather's better for your walks down there. And uh, we'll be back with everyone else next week with a brand new show on a topic yet to be announced, which is typically how we do things anyway. But yet to be even thought of. I haven't even oh, thought true. of. Oh, true. It's yet. not just not announced. It's not even decided. No. It's not just, even pondered. It's not, it's not even an idea in the back of my mind. <laughs> okay. Well, I have confidence that it'll be a good one. So, <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll talk to you again next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 